This podcast is brought to you by Simply Light. Introducing Simply Light Lemonade. Can you hear that? That's the sweet sound of 75% less sugar and calories. We want to make sure you hear it's 75% less sugar and calories because it tastes so good. and at the same time costs less. Betty Crocker cake mixes bake perfect cakes. When your husband... Although the ration was intended to provide sufficient food to sustain five men for one day... You're listening to The Feast, where history is served with a dash of hot sauce or a squeeze of lemon. Where we look behind those dates and names everyone knows to the meals that made them. I'm your host, Laura Carlson. And each week, we're bringing you stories of how revolutions can start at lunch counters, or how empires can end over dessert. Some of the biggest moments in history happened over dinner, and we're giving you a seat at the table. Hey there, Feast listeners. Well, it's been almost exactly a year that we've been telling you great tales of meals from the past. It's kind of hard to believe. Now, we're about to take a short break as we think up ideas for new episodes for next season. But for our last episode, we're bringing you something really special. While over here at the Feast Podcast, we bring you stories of meals from the past, over in Santa Cruz, California, Liz Birnbaum is creating delicious meals, using the inspiration of food and culinary narratives of the past. Her project, The Curated Feast, uses carefully crafted food and atmospheres to immerse guests into a world of history and legend. And today, we're going to take you on one of her culinary journeys, to a recent meal she held that draws on some of the oldest and richest culinary and mythical traditions in human history. Traditions, as we'll see, that carry on even to today. On today's episode, we'll get to visit one of Liz's recent feasts to see how she's reinvented and reimagined ancient traditions of spring and rebirth, where diners traveled from underground caves to Mount Olympus itself. And yes, there will be an actual cave involved. But we'll get to that in a moment. In the meantime, let's let Liz tell us a bit more about her inspiration behind the curated feast. Uh, My name is Liz Birnbaum, and I am the founder of The Curated Feast. I started it in summer of 2015, and I've been kind of rocking with it ever since. I'm in Santa Cruz, California. Um, Yeah, I kind of started with the idea where I wanted to know where food came from on a deeper level, and so that was an initial motivating idea behind these feasts. Liz uses each event, each feast as they're known, to evoke a particular theme, geography, legend, or history. She carefully crafts the food location and atmosphere to transport the diner, whether that's to a specific period in time or a more conceptual look at some of the themes food has symbolized across time and culture. The very first feast was the topic of ancient Greece and Uh, From there, the next two feasts were really similarly geographically located and sort of positioned in a time and place. Um, The second one was the Silk Road. So that did cover a lot of time, but it was this very 
geographic journey that we took from east to west. And then the one after that was, the theme was 1493, which um, was all about the Colombian exchange and was uh, also intended to remove Columbus from the absolute center of that narrative. So we explored kind of alternative narratives to globalization. For each of these themes, Liz works to develop a menu that will play to the historical, geographical, or even conceptual trends of her feast. For example, how do you recreate ancient Greece, a theme that evokes not just a period of time, but a complex political, literary, and religious culture on a plate? I asked her to explain a bit of this process. It was definitely more conceptual, but it bridged into, of course, those those specific historical periods or um, even just regional cuisines. For the Silk Road, we had one course uh, located in Baghdad um, and we it, it wound up being a savory galette with lamb and chickpeas and um, some pomegranate seeds on top. And so you can see that that sort of fits regionally with, um, with that kind of cuisine and the idea of Baghdad. But I was really excited to do a galette because Baghdad is known as the circular city. Um, it was, you know, created in the round. And so, and it was this cultural hub. And so this kind of symbolism of a wheel mixed with the the fact that it was built actually as a round city. Um, it took four years to build. And I kind of to- told that story during the feast. And that wound up being the key kind of symbolic reason to include a galette, but then also the lamb and the chickpeas and the pomegranates really fit fit the region. I usually work very closely with a chef once I have a sketch of kind of the the overarching narrative of a feast and some of the courses laid out. That's usually the time I I um, bring chefs in to start brainstorming. And while the food is of course important, Liz considers all the senses in creating an atmosphere for her feasts that evokes a particular era, theme, or tradition. Yeah, that one in particular was outside at this beautiful home um, where they do these kind of like wood frames and um, little cabinets out of reclaimed wood. And so it was this really um, neat kind of like you know, if you're thinking of the Silk Road as this kind of lavish place of trade, but there's also this kind of real work going on. And so, um, and it was on this long, beautiful wood table. Um, in fact, amazingly, uh, during the course, which was set in Samarkand, um, I was talking about the Zoroastrian religion, which um, had some emphasis on worshiping uh, with fire and the ground caught on fire <laughs> under the fire pit at that moment or before that course in the feast. So yeah, that was a special setting, setting the mood with uh, setting the ground on fire. But yeah, in general, you know, they're really lovely occasions with, you know, little sort of symbols are woven into the table settings and the napkins and, you know, the flowers are usually, are actually always considered directly in relation to not only the theme, but what the history of that flower is and the symbolism and just a variety of, of things. So so I can never talk about all of the different elements um, at any one course um, or at, at, excuse me, at any one feast. Like it's just an amazing sort of mental exercise to go through and see how many things I can weave back into uh, one, one thematic kind of narrative. 
So for Liz's most recent feast, she explored a theme that pops up again and again throughout human culture, dating from our earliest years as a species. And we did promise you a cave, didn't we? As some of humanity's earliest homes, caves retain a special significance in most cultures. As humans, there's something we find enduringly fascinating about them, perhaps a basic, even primeval memory we all share about these spaces. After all, go back a few thousand years, and these were our first homes, our first kitchens. The earliest signs of human activity have almost always been found in caves, from early hand axes to symbols painted on cave walls. Even today throughout the world, people still make caves their homes. In the Peak District of England, rope makers lived in local caverns until the 1950s. And in the Guizhou province of China, an entire elementary school was built inside a giant cave, opening in 1984 and closing only in 2011. For thousands of years, caves have been a natural place of protection for humans. But caves are funny. They're not just a place of safety. They're also the lairs of dragons, of monsters, of really anything sinister the human imagination can dream up. Caves also can be conduits, linking the world above to the world below. Caves have often been the entrances to hell, or the underworld. In Turkey, an ancient temple known in English as Pluto's Gate was built directly above a giant cave, considered a path to the world of the dead. When archaeologists explored the cave below the temple, they found hundreds, if not thousands, of animal bones, thrown in as ancient sacrifices to Pluto, or Hades, god of the Greco-Roman underworld. This ancient twinned theme of protection and danger, the links between life and death, those dualities inherent to caves, this was exactly what Liz wanted to explore in her recent feast, which she simply titled, Underground. Underground as a theme really felt exciting to me because also um, in relation to the spring, springtime and, um, you know, everything from, so, you know, in the Christian tradition where Jesus is uh, resurrected after having been in the cave and um, also traditions of kind of caves being this um, this kind of womb-like space where, you know, culture really was seeded. And so I really wanted to go back to that deepest time um, and deal with this sort of cycle, cycle of life concept and resurrection. And of course, it is the spring. And that's also why I wanted to position this feast right now is, um, you know, to to kind of honor the spring season and California here, we've just had, I would say, uh, our first winter in a while in terms of the rains that uh, are usually to be expected in winter, which have not been here the last few years with the drought. Now we've, I think, had an official winter and it's almost a way of celebrating that in a deeper way. A lot of the farmers, I know some of their fields were flooded even to 10 feet um, of water. Yeah, some of the rice farmers I know up in the Central Valley, uh, that was the case. And so really, it's just like, okay, like we just went through this really epic and dramatic and like very much a time that was very much connected to these bigger cycles and myths. And so that's what I'm also looking at in this feast.
there's this place in Santa Cruz. Uh, it's a tourist destination called the Mystery Spot, um, and it's one of those. How would you describe it? It's one of those kind of fun houses in a way where, you know, the walls are, you know, whatever, water runs backwards and things are slanted. It's just one of those kind of funky tourist traps, but it's definitely a a fixture in town. Uh, you see a lot of the bumper stickers and whatnot for the mystery spot. Um, and this dinner will be above the mystery spot, um, just past it and up into the hills there um, at a private you know, home location, which has a cave. And uh, that cave was actually carved by two brothers uh, who were making wine. And so there's these pick marks that you can still see um, all over the ceiling from this hand-picked space. And additionally, it also, uh, they had speakeasy, it was a speakeasy uh, during Pro Prohibition. So um, it's a really special uh, kind of spot. The underground feast plays on all these themes, taking inspiration from myths and legends that have the ideas of caves, spring, renewal, and the balance between life and death built into their very core, including one of the most famous and mysterious traditions of caves in history. But before we get into all of that, let's head over to that California cave and Liz's feast itself. Together with guitarist Carl Atalano and chef Hedy Nachmanson, Liz explains a bit of the background of her concept for the event to her diners. You guys are so good. You're so expectant already. Um, welcome. This is so special to have you all here in the cave for this wonderful feast. My name's Liz. I'm the founder of The Curated Feast, which travels through space and time, exploring history and mythology through food. Um, today we're really looking at mythology most carefully, and especially as I kind of primed you all light and dark. So, imagine a time before language. A time when human culture and experience... Liz took us through started. each of the courses her cave diners would enjoy during their underground dinner, explaining how each item on a dish represented either different culinary traditions or mythical themes tied to lightness and dark. First course, roots. Pumpernickel basil soil, root vegetables, and puffed shumei rice. So that one is going to be presented in this way that kind of looks like some root vegetables coming out of the soil. Um, it's almost like a literalist, kind of visually a literal take on vegetables in soil. The root vegetables themselves will be, some will be cooked and some will be either raw or pickled. Um, and that is to kind of invoke this idea of early cooking, this um, time perhaps even before language is where we begin. And then uh, the puffed shumei rice, I'll just say that shumei is the Japanese nat natural agriculture uh, growing technique. And it will be this particular rice that this uh, farmer basically explained to me that this meth the method that the these rice grains were grown in is attentive to this concept that the parent plant um, has a relationship with the soil that the, the offspring will know innately and so the offspring of each parent plant is saved and planted in the same field. Um, the idea actually if taken completely literally is so that the offspring are planted exactly where the parent was and so this idea of this longer term relationship with soil is, um, is present in this dish as well. 
These dishes span a range of meaning, such as specific agricultural traditions like the Japanese shumei, connecting one generation to the next. But these dishes also can represent more conceptual links, such as myths and legends linked to local growing seasons. You see, behind some of the most iconic ancient stories, you can find connections to agriculture and more specifically food. For Liz, the ancient Egyptian story of Isis and Osiris is the clearest example. The god Osiris, king of the Egyptian underworld, was betrayed and killed by his brother Set. His body, cut into 14 pieces, was scattered throughout the world. Now, thanks to the devotion of Isis, Osiris's companion, she hunted down each of these pieces, slowly reassembling and eventually resurrecting Osiris. But this myth has a very specific agricultural purpose. Those 14 pieces served as a memory trick for ancient Egyptian farmers. Each of Osiris's 14 body parts corresponded to a specific seasonal change in the Egyptian calendar, allowing farmers to predict annual cycles on which to base their crops. The story of Osiris may be just one example, but cultures the world over have themes of death and rebirth embedded into not only their folklore, but their food. Course 2. Ashes. Grains, seeds, lentils. And mushroom dashi, smoky chili, onion ash, and tendrils. Yes, so the ashes, um, you know, begins, that course begins in a time when the whole world is covered in ashes. It's this idea of the phoenix, right? So uh, looking at kind of the concept of resurrection as the earth itself is resurrected, you know, thinking of the kind of the phoenix and its connection potentially deeper to the, um, the Bennu bird, which was an avatar for Osiris. And of course, then again, Osiris is this kind of god of the underworld and also a kind of a bridge between death and resurrection and, and kind of the earth and the under underbelly. One question I'm going to pose is um, besides kind of looking at what the phoenix represented is what are the mythic implications of a seed? The seed that contains this reciprocity of life and death all in this one small package. And, you know, we see a seed as elementary, but it's also the beginning and the end of everything. So um, this tale, when the, when the world is covered in ashes, these two um, kind of de semi-deities come back uh, they fly back to the earth and they see that everything has been burned and they go down to the surface and they're looking for any sign of life and they're, they just don't find, they don't find it. And um, they start to miss the shade and they start to miss the green and the, the water and the kind of respiration of the plants. And they, one of them feels moved to begin drumming. He, began to drum. he drummed on the mass of charcoal until he lost himself in the rhythm. He began to dance and he began to sing. He began to dance and sing and drum until the rhythm and the music spread out across the vast expanse of ash. He drummed and danced and sang until he was completely exhausted. He collapsed right there and then he slept. While he slept, he dreamt of a green tendril. That tendril emerged from the ashes. And, and so he's drumming on this charred, 
log and um, he was remembering and singing about the time when trees would give permission to be created into a drum. Uh, he begins that kind of drumming and then he starts singing and then uh, that sparks up a one green tendril that um, that symbolizes this this idea of life beginning anew. For this second course, Liz blended the story of the ancient Egyptian Bennu bird. Perhaps a... Tonight on NBC... Will everyone in the cardiac surgical department please raise your hands? Thank you. You're all fired. Based on an inspiring true story... Any department who places billing above care, you will be terminated. One doctor will break every rule... Just tell me what you need, what your patients need... To inspire a revolution. Let's get into some trouble. Let's be doctors again. From the network that brings you This Is Us, New Amsterdam, tonight on NBC. This podcast is brought to you by Simply Light. Introducing Simply Light Lemonade. Can you hear that? That's the sweet sound of 75% less sugar and calories. We want to make sure you hear it's 75% less sugar and calories because it tastes so good. Predecessor of the Phoenix. With similar imagery we find in the folklore of the Toba people, an indigenous community spanning modern-day Argentina and Brazil, which often depicts the underworld in the shape of a giant bird. Perhaps a version of the same bird in Liz's story, who dreamed of the new green tendril, a symbol of returning life. But as we move through this feast, we turn to yet another mythical symbol for death and resurrection, arguably the most well-known of any of these. A story that gave birth to one of the most popular, if mysterious, ceremonies we know about from the ancient Greco-Roman world. The story of Persephone and the Pomegranates. Course 3. Pearls. Levin, Chev, and Pomegranate Pearls. Persephone is this amazing character. Her her tale is very much tied to her mother's, uh, Demeter. They are the two that are kind of like the, the maiden and the older maid. As I've read more about it, I found how many variations there really were. And so I went back to um, the Homeric hymn about Persephone. And I'm certainly not going to read the entire thing because it is so long. And so really the, the core of the story goes something like Persephone, who's this kind of young maiden and a kind of embodiment of spring and a bit of like naivete or just youth. She is in the fields. She's with her friends and she sees this one golden narcissus flower and she reaches down to get it and the ground splits from below her. Hades comes up in this chariot to seize her against her will and they take this journey back into the underworld. Very few of the characters really see this happen and so there aren't many accounts to explain where Persephone went when her mother Demeter is looking for her. All the while, Demeter, uh, as she's kind of mourning the loss of her daughter and learning where she is, and of course she's very upset that she's in the underworld with the um, with Hades, the lord of the underworld, uh, Demeter is not allowing the crops to grow on earth. Now, there are different accounts of how Persephone is feeling about her time under uh, underground. Um, some tales, I think, in a sense, more modern 
retellings actually show uh, a side of Persephone, which most may not know, which is that she seems to really like Hades and they seem to be happy to spend uh, that time together. And her one uh, sort of grievance is that she is not, uh, her mother is still looking for her and she can't tell her where she is. So um, meanwhile, the uh, the gods are beginning to plead with Demeter up um, uh, above on, on earth and in the skies, as it were, and on Mount Olympus. The gods on Mount Olympus begin to rally to ask Demeter to please let the crops grow again, not because they care a terrible lot about humans, but because they they actually just want the sacrifices made to them again. And without the crops and without um, as many animals, gods aren't getting the sacrifices they think they're due. And so uh, they let Demeter know where Persephone is. Before Hades lets Persephone go, Hades gives Persephone the six pomegranate seeds and explains to her what it means if she eats them and then she chooses to eat them so that she can spend six months below with him and six months above with her mother. And in other versions, and I think more traditional versions, Hades totally tricks her by either sort of slipping in, slipping them in some way, like into a drink or into her mouth, or he lets her eat them and doesn't explain what the the uh, consequences are. But it's this very interesting outcome, which is that if you've eaten any of the fruits of the underworld, you need to remain there for some period of time. And since she ate, again, in most stories, six pomegranate seeds, she needs to remain under uh, underground in the underworld for six months of the year. Um, and the part of the consequence of this that we see still today, if you if you go by this um, tale and uh, mythology, is that there is six months of winter, and um, when Persephone comes back, it is the spring, and Demeter brings everything kind of into bloom, or well, she and Demeter together bring everything into bloom and new life um, as Persephone comes back. Because the story of Persephone relates to the six pomegranate seeds that she ate, the chef wants to do six pomegranate pearls on top of each one. So it's going to have little pomegranate spheres on top of this kind of like, the chef is going to be like a, almost like whipped and it's going to have this pomegranate gelée. So it's going to be almost like a, like a mid-dinner uh, sort of not super sweet parfait um, and the Levant toast uh, just kind of like nestled at the top to eat that with. Pomegranates are considered one of the most ancient fruits cultivated by humans for thousands of years. So perhaps it's not surprising when they pop up laden with symbolism throughout the Mediterranean and Fertile Crescent. They were considered essential components in the burial ceremonies of ancient Egyptian pharaohs and were equally esteemed by the ancient Israelites. In the Old Testament, the Promised Land is described as a place teeming with figs, olives, and pomegranates. This symbolism even continued into the Islamic tradition, where the pomegranate was often considered to be the fruit of the Tree of Life from the Garden of Eden. Pomegranates were particularly prized and frequently cultivated throughout the Middle East. Under Moorish rule in Spain, the Muslim king of Granada even chose a pomegranate as the emblem for his region. A symbol that, centuries later, would become the banner of another Spanish royal, Catherine of Aragon, when she wed the English king, Henry VIII.
Course 4. Axis. Cured pork. Cherry. Charred cabbage. Barley, pine nuts, and blossoms. That story, uh, the, or the title of that dish, is actually based off of the idea that in a way, right after Persephone as the course, we've reached the midpoint and, uh, you know, the kind of the axis of the dinner. Um, it's it's the most main course like, and everything is revolving around it. So I think this is one of the most unsavory stories of the whole feast, but I, I might go for it. So the Thesmorphia festival uh, was this celebration of Persephone and Demeter and a bit, I think, a celebration of their uh, being reunited. During this festival, um, it was exclusive to women, I should mention, um, and during this festival there were sacrifices made, some pig's remains were mixed in with seeds uh, right before this sort of sowing of seeds. This festival, kind of just before the, the Thesmorphia festival, piglets were thrown into an underground chamber. Um, and so there's this kind of relationships between relationship between pigs, this kind of springtime and the kind of planting. In, in a sense, this is like Persephone part two. Um, you know, it's like it's like kind of a reframe of the Persephone narrative a little bit. Um, the pine notes, pine nuts come from that as well. Um, the the note again in about this festival being that you know it was a pine cones were a well known symbol of fertility, and then the barley um, is one of the most amazing things I find when I'm going into these feasts is like I almost I so early you know I have to pick this pick a theme and start moving towards it. But these initial, um, I guess, kind of intuitions that I feel like I have, um, that it's amazing how things come together. Um, and this one is one of those moments where the barley berries um, both relate to Osiris and Persephone, but in this really strange way. So um, so there's this, there's this one carving that um, Campbell talks about um, in, in his lectures from, um, or I believe it's from his lectures from Esalen Institute. And there's, it's this carving where Hecate is present, um, this kind of dark negative aspect to the goddess symbolism as he describes it. And also, um, you know, the cult of Persephone, there was a ceremony which involved consuming a barley drink before attending to the rites of the ceremonies. And, one of the historically important hallucinogens is ergot, which is uh, present on barley and wheat. And so it may have been that, you know, this is speculation, but it may have been that this barley broth contained a bit of this hallucinogenic ergot and that it was included in this kind of theatrical epiphany. Then, of course, this Osiris kind of connection to barley, I, I'd have to look back into it, but... um there's many uh, associations with Osiris and Barley as well. So in a way, this this one also reminds me of the very first course and that concept of the magic of the springtime and how um, at one time, and I, I, you know, I'd like to believe that this is still kind of true for certain people, but there's this magic in this bare earth once again sprouting um, as if it itself was a resurrection of these plants. And um, I think that's where a lot of these resurrection myths come from. Osiris is 
is directly connected to barley for this reason, um, because barley was seen as this kind of death and resurrection, and Osiris, of course, represented all of that. So yeah, and the charred cabbage was is almost a nod to kind of that like that ashes course. It's kind of this is really one of the really I would say the culminating course in terms of the stories and these kind of subtle whispers back to the others. Course five, celestial, milk custard and honey oat crumble, milk foam, flowers, and gold. This um. Perhaps interestingly, the original title for this course was going to be Milk and Honey, but I I felt like I want it to be a bit of a, a revelation for people when they reach this dessert course. Um, so I didn't want to print it on the menu as clearly as Milk and Honey. So, you know, maybe people could kind of piece it out that it's a bit of a Milk and Honey theme, but the theme is also quite equally just stargazing and sort of this celestial component. You know, as as we kind of come to the end of the narrative of this feast, it's a reminder that we are also a part of this kind of cycle and this universal kind of heartbeat. I'd also say, you know, stars remind us remind us of life and this feast we go from death to life in in a sense in terms of darkness to light and kind of these roots to the heavens. This the stars take us to this final step uh towards the divine, which arguably as I have been a farmer and have long supported, you know, farmers and uh you know, organic agriculture, I think there's just as much sort of awe to be found in the roots and in the soil as there is to be found in the stars. And so that's kind of where I'm going with this as well as more particularly, I may be telling the story of um, of the Milky Way. And, you know, Hercules is this demigod. Uh, Zeus is his father, but he is a mortal mother. Hera, one of the, you know, key goddesses, is the wife of Zeus. So I guess one day Zeus thought it was a great idea to take Hercules and have him nurse on um, on Hera's breast and while she was sleeping and she wakes up and she sees this strange child who you know is it's obviously complicated um sees this child on her and she flings him off and splattering milk all across the skies thus creating the milky way so there's the milk uh, in the story. <laughs> I really also want to explore the idea of like, what is a promised land and, and what does it mean to reach that and and, and to reach that together? And um, particularly in the US, um, right now we have such divisive politics. Th- this current presidency is, uh, Trump's presidency is a marker of uh, a moment where I think people are coming together in all sorts of different ways and really engaging in this question of what do we want to bring to the world. And so so this this course is also this nod to this broader concept of of you know the land of milk and honey and the promised land. This kind of um again reading a lot of Joseph Campbell for this feast, um the the symbolic heaven without the religious tinge to it, but this the you know or perhaps heaven on earth. Joseph, there's this great quote by Joseph Campbell that that really I think fits for this whole feast, which is he says, you know, those 
who cannot see beyond the symbols are like diners going into a restaurant and eating the menu. There's a good deal of menu eating in this world, and uh, I, I hope at least the at the very least the curated feast is uh, not the place where people will be doing that. It's been a wonderful gift to take this journey with all of you. So thank you for being here. Liz held her two underground feasts on May 12th and 13th this year, featuring recipes by Chef Hedy Nachmanson and music by Carl Adelano. You can find more about Hedy's recipes, including some from this feast, as well as Carl's music, on our website. And even though this feast might be over, Liz is already hard at work planning her next event. You can visit her website at thecuratedfeast.org to find out more. She's also in the process of publishing her first book. So my co-authors are Jody Brazil Colclough, Katie Lang Hansen, and Sierra Ryan. The book is called Harvesting Our Heritage. We've really taken the the lighter approach in terms of looking at our agri- food and agricultural history here in Santa Cruz County. So we've gone from um, wheat and potatoes to clams to artichokes, Brussels sprouts, strawberries, um, and even to uh, this uh, wonderful, more modern dry farmed tomato, which all these all these crops have spectacular stories and connections to um, global agriculture, including, you know, Santa Cruz has this, is a very agricultural county, but there's there's these stories that a lot of uh, folks don't know. Downtown Santa Cruz, even many locals don't know that um, it wouldn't really be there if it weren't for potatoes. This spud rush, which happened in conjunction with the gold rush in uh, the 1850s. So for just a couple of years, this uh, boom and then very fast bust market created a hub mostly downtown where people were growing potatoes. And then the drive, um, I guess I'm just thinking like Santa Cruz, unless people know it. I don't know, but I guess people care. It's interesting to um, uncover the kind of food geography uh, here on the central coast of California and um, to see that, you know, the connections to global agricultural trade, total hippie, the Grateful Dead, um, you know, who would buy these particular tomatoes from a farm here. Um, and all those stories are in, encapsulated in this really fun book, which, um, you know, both delves into just these characters and the kind of trajectory of these crops, but also does it in a, a sort of light, lighthearted way. You can find more about Liz and her upcoming book not to mention the curated feast, on our website at thefeastpodcast.org, including pictures from the underground feast, as well as some recipes from the meal. And that's it for us, and for this season. A huge thank you to Liz Birnbaum of the curated feast, not to mention the talented Hetty Nockmanson and Carl Adelano, who all were fantastically helpful in supplying information and music for this episode. And of course... A huge thank you to our listeners and supporters, some of whom have been with us from the very beginning, way back in May 2016. We have loved making the feast this year, from our very first episode on the history of Oktoberfest 
to the ancient origins of beer, to our collaborations with Sonoran ethnobotanists, Yale researchers, the Detroit Institute of Arts, and of course, the curated feast. Now, if you've missed some episodes along the way, our entire episode archive is available on our website. We'll be taking a short break for the next few weeks, while Mike and I head to Spain to walk part of the Camino de Santiago. We'll be recording some of our adventures, so look for those on the website when we return. The feast will be back itself in June with a whole new season, so look for exciting new changes, and of course, new feasts from history. In the meantime, you can find updates about us on Twitter and Instagram at feast underscore podcast. And if you'd like to become a supporting member of the feast, please visit our donate page. Supporters are subscribed to our lovely newsletter, and you may be eligible to receive a free feast t-shirt with your donation. We rely entirely on your help to keep the feast up and running. Your support means the world to us. The Feast is written and produced by me, Laura Carlson. Technical direction by Mike Port, who is already dreaming of the patatas bravas and croquetas that wait for us on the Camino. And to be honest, so am I. Thanks again, everyone. See you all in June.